0: CHAPTER THREE OF PITCHING IN A PINCH BY Christie MATHEWSON THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER THREE PITCHING IN A PINCH IN MOST BIG LEAGUE BALL GAMES THERE COMES AN INNING ON WHICH HANGS VICTORY OR DEFEAT. CERTAIN INTELLECTUAL FANS CALL IT THE CRISIS. COLLEGE PROFESSORS INTERESTED IN THE SPORT HAVE NAMED IT THE PSYCHOLOGICAL MOMENT. BIG LEAGUE MANAGERS MENTION IT AS THE BREAK, AND PITCHERS SPEAK OF THE PINCH. This is the time when each team is straining every nerve either to win or to prevent defeat. The players and spectators realize that the outcome of the inning is of vital importance, and in most of these pinches, the real burden falls on the pitcher. It is at this moment that he is putting all he has on the ball, and simultaneously his opponents are doing everything they can to disconcert him. Managers wait for this break, and the shrewd league leader can often time it, Frequently, a certain style of play is adopted to lead up to the pinch, then suddenly a slovenly mode of attack is changed, and the team comes on with a rush in an effort to break up the game. This is the real test of a pitcher. He must be able to live through these squalls. Two evenly matched clubs have been playing through six innings, with neither team gaining any advantage. Let us say that they are the Giants and the Chicago Cubs. Suddenly, the Chicago pitcher begins to weaken in the seventh spectators cannot perceive this but mcgraw the giant's manager has detected some crack all has been quiet on the bench up to this moment now the men begin to fling about sweaters and move around one going to the water cooler to get a drink another picking up a bat or two and flinging them in the air while four or five prospective hitters are lined up swinging several sticks apiece as if absolutely confident that each will get his turn at the plate The two coaches on the sidelines have become dancing dervishes, waving sweaters and arms wildly, and shouting various words of discouragement to the pitcher which are calculated to make his job as soft as a bed of concrete. He has pitched three balls to the batter, and McGraw vehemently protests to the umpire that the twirler is not keeping his foot on the slab. The game is delayed while this is discussed at the pitcher's box, and the umpire brushes off the rubber strip with a whisk broom. There is a kick against these tactics from the other bench, but the damage has been done. The pitcher passes the batter, forgets what he ought to throw to the next man, and cannot get the ball where he wants it. A base hit follows. Then he is gone. The following batter triples, and before another pitcher can be warmed up, three or four runs are across the plate, and the game is won. That explains why so many wise managers keep a pitcher warming up when the man in the box is going strong. It is in the pinch that the pitcher shows whether or not he is a big leaguer. He must have something besides curves, then. He needs a head, and he has to use it. It is the acid test. That is the reason so many men who shine in the minor leagues fail to make good in the majors. They cannot stand the fire. A young pitcher came to the Giants a few years ago. I won't mention his name, because he has been pitching good minor league ball since. He was a wonder with the bases empty but let a man or two get on the sacks and he wouldn't know whether he was in a pitcher's box or learning aviation in the right school and he acted a lot more like an aviator in the crisis. McGraw looked him over twice. He's got a spine like a Charlotte Roos, declared Mac after his second peak and he passed him back to the bushes. Several other big league managers, tempted by this man's brilliant record in the minors, have tried him out since, but he has always gone back. McGraw's judgment of the man was correct. On the other hand, Otis Crandall came to the New York club a few years ago, a raw country boy from Indiana. I shall never forget how he looked the first spring I saw him in Texas. The club had a large number of recruits and was short of uniforms. He was among the last of the hopefuls to arrive, and there was no suit for him, so, in a pair of regular trousers with his coat off, he began chasing flies in the outfield. His head hung down on his chest, and when not playing, a cigarette drooped out of the corner of his mouth. But he turned out to be a very good fly-chaser, and McGraw admired his persistency. "'What are you?' McGraw asked him one day. "'A pitcher,' replied Crandall. Two words constitute an oration for him. "'Let's see what you've got,' said McGraw. Crandall warmed up, and he didn't have much of anything besides a sweeping-out curve and a good deal of speed.' He looked less like a pitcher than any of the spring crop, but McGraw saw something in him and kept him. The result is he has turned out to be one of the most valuable men on the club because he is there in a pinch. He couldn't be disturbed if the McNamaras tied a bomb to him with a time fuse on it set for at once. He is the sort of pitcher who is best when things look darkest. I've heard the crowd yelling when he has been pitching on the enemy's ground, so that a 16-inch gun couldn't have been heard if it had gone off in the lot. That crowd was making some noise, I said to Crandall after the inning. Was it? asked Odie. I didn't notice it. One day in 1911, he started a game in Philadelphia, and three men got on the bases with no one out along about the fourth or fifth inning. He shut them out without a run. It was the first game he had started for a long while, his specialty having been to enter a contest after some other pitcher had gotten into trouble, with two or three men on the bases and scarcely anyone out. After he came to the bench with the threatening inning behind him, he said to me, "Matty, I didn't feel at home out there today until a lot of people got on the bases. I'll be all right now.' And he was. "'I believe that Crandall is the best pitcher in a pinch in the National League,' and one of the most valuable men to a team, for he can play any position and bats hard. Besides being a great pinch pitcher, he can also hit in a crush, and won many games for the Giants in 1911 that way. Very often, spectators think that a pitcher has lost his grip in a pinch, when really he is playing inside baseball. A game with Chicago in Chicago back in 1908, not the famous contest that cost the Giants a championship, I did not have any grip at all that day, but one earlier in the season best illustrates the point I want to bring out. Mordecai Brown and I were having a pitcher's duel, and the Giants were in the lead by the score of one to nothing when the team took the field for the ninth inning. It was one of those fragile games in which one run makes a lot of difference, the sort that has a fringe of nervous prostration for the spectators. Chance was up in the ninth, and he pushed a base hit to right field steinfeld followed with a triple that brought chance home and left the run which would win the game for the cubs on third base the crowd was shouting like mad thinking i was done i looked at the hitters waiting to come up and saw hoffman and tinker swinging their bats in anticipation both are dangerous men but the silver lining was my second look which revealed to me Kling and brown following hoffman and tinker without a second's hesitation i decided to pass both hoffman and tinker because the run on third base would win the game anyway if it scored, and with three men on the bags instead of one, there would be a remote chance for a triple play, besides making a force out at the plate possible. Remember that no one was out at this time. Kling and Brown had always been easy for me. When I got two balls on Hoffman, trying to make him hit at a bad one, the throng stood up in the stand and tore splinters out of the floor with its feet. Then I passed Hoffman the spectators misunderstood my motive he's done he's all in shouted one man in a voice which was one of the carrying persistent penetrating sort the crowd took the cry up and stamped its feet and cheered wildly then i passed tinker a man as i have said before who has had a habit of making trouble for me The crowd quieted down somewhat, perhaps because it was not possible for it to cheer any louder, but probably because the spectators thought that now it would be only a matter of how many the Cubs would win by. The bases were full, and no one was out. But that wildly cheering crowd had worked me up to a greater effort, and I struck Kling out, and then Brown followed him back to the bench for the same reason. Just one batter stood between me and a tied score now. He was John Evers, and the crowd, having lost its chortle of victory, was begging him to make the hit, which would bring just one run over the plate. They were surprised by my recuperation after having passed two men. Evers lifted a gentle fly to left field, and the three men were left on the bases. The Giants eventually won that game in the eleventh inning by the score of four to one. But that system doesn't always work. Often I have passed a man to get a supposedly poor batter up, and then had him bang out a base hit. My first successful year in the National League was 1901, although I joined the Giants in the middle of the season of 1900. The Boston Club at that time had a pitcher named Kid Nichols, who was a great twirler. The first two games I pitched against the Boston Club were against this man, and I won the first in Boston and the second in New York, the latter by the score of 2-1. to one. Both teams then went west for a three-weeks trip, and when the Giants returned, a series was scheduled with Boston at the polo grounds. There was a good deal of speculation as to whether I would again beat the veteran, Kid Nichols, and the newspapers, discussing the promised pitching duel, stirred up considerable enthusiasm over it. Of course I, the youngster, was eager to make it three straight over the veteran. Neither team had scored at the beginning of the eighth inning. Boston runners got on second and third bases with two out, and Fred Tenney, then playing first base on the Boston Club, was up at the bat. He had been hitting me hard that day, and I decided to pass him and take a chance on Dick Cooley, the next man, and a weak batter. So Tenney got his base on balls, and the sacks were full. Two strikes were gathered on Cooley, one at which he swung and the other called, and I was beginning to congratulate myself on my excellent judgment, which was really counting my chickens while they were still in the incubator. I attempted to slip a fast one over on Cooley and got the ball a little too high. The result was that he stepped into it and made a three-base hit which eventually won the game by the score of three to nothing. That was once when passing a man to get a weak batter did not work. I have always been against a twirler pitching himself out when there is no necessity for it as so many youngsters do. They burn them through for eight innings and then when the pinch comes something is lacking a pitcher must remember that there are eight other men in the game drawing more or less salary to stop balls hit at them and he must have confidence in them some pitchers will put all that they have on each ball this is foolish for two reasons in the first place it exhausts a man physically and when the pinch comes he has not the strength to last it out but second and more important it shows the batters everything that he has which is senseless A man should always hold something in reserve, a surprise to spring when things get tight. If a pitcher has displayed his whole assortment to the batters in the early part of the game, and has used all his speed and his fastest breaking curve, then, when the crisis comes, he hasn't anything to fall back on. Like all youngsters, I was eager to make a record during my first year in the big league, and in one of the first games I pitched against Cincinnati, I made the mistake of putting all that I had on every ball. We were playing at the polo grounds, and the Giants had the visitors beaten two to nothing, going into the last inning. I had been popping them through, trying to strike out every hitter, and had not held anything in reserve. The first man to bat in the ninth got a single, the next a two-bagger, and by the time they had stopped hitting me, the scorer had credited the Cincinnati club with four runs, and we lost the game four to two. I was very much down in the mouth over the defeat after I had the game apparently won, and George Davis, then the manager of the Giants, noticed it in the clubhouse. Never mind, Matty, he said. It was worth it. The game ought to teach you not to pitch your head off when you don't need to. It did. I have never forgotten that lesson. Many spectators wonder why a pitcher does not work as hard as he can all through the game, instead of just in the pinches. If he did, they argue, there would be no pinches but there would be, and if the pitcher did not conserve his energy, the pinches would usually go against him. Sometimes bawling at a man in a pinch has the opposite effect from that desired. Clark Griffith, recently of Cincinnati, has a reputation in the big leagues for being a bad man to upset a pitcher from the coach's box. Off the field he is one of the decentest fellows in the game, but when talking to a pitcher he is very irritating. I was working in a game against the Reds in Cincinnati one day, just after he had been made manager of the club, and Griffith spent the afternoon and a lot of breath trying to get me going. The Giants were ahead five to one at the beginning of the seventh. In the Cincinnati half of that inning, Mike Mitchell tripled with the bases full and later tallied on an outfield fly which tied the score. The effect this had on Griffith was much the same as that of a lighted match on Gasoline. Now, you big blonde, he shouted at me, we've got you at last. I expected McGraw to take me out, as it looked in that inning as if I was not right, but he did not, and I pitched along up to the ninth with the score still tied, and with Griffith the carping critic on the sidelines. We failed to count in our half, but the first Cincinnati batter got on the bases, stole second, and went to third on a sacrifice. He was there with one out. ''Here's where we get you,'' chortled Griffith. ''This is the point at which you receive a terrible showing up.'' I tried to get the next batter to hit at bad balls, and he refused, so that I lost him. I was afraid to lay the ball over the plate in this crisis, as a hit or an outfield fly meant the game. Hoblitzel and Mitchell, two of Griffith's heaviest batters, were scheduled to arrive at the plate next. ''You ought to be up, Mike,'' yelled the Cincinnati manager at Mitchell who was swinging a couple of sticks preparatory to his turn at the bat. "'Too bad you won't get a lick, old man, because Hobby's going to break it up right here.' Something he said irritated me, but instead of worrying me, he made me feel more like pitching. I seldom talked to a coach, but I turned to Griffith and said, "'I'll bring Mike up, and we'll see what he can do.' I deliberately passed Hoblitzell, without even giving him a chance to hit at a single ball." It wasn't to make a grandstand play I did this, but because it was baseball. One run wouldn't win the game anyway, and with more men on the bases, there were more plays possible. Besides, Hoblitzell is a nasty hitter, and I thought that I had a better chance of making Mitchell hit the ball on the ground, a desirable thing under the conditions. "'Now, Mike,' urged Griffith, as Mitchell stepped up to the plate, "'Go as far as you like. Blot up the bases, old boy. This blonde is gone.' That sort of talk never bothers me. I had better luck with Mitchell than I had hoped. He struck out. The next batter was easy, and the Giants won the game in the tenth inning. According to the newspaper reports, I won 21 or 22 games before Cincinnati beat me again, so it can be seen that joshing in pinches is not effective against all pitchers. A manager must judge the temperament of his victim. But Griffith has never stopped trying to rag me. In 1911, when the Giants were west on their final trip, I was warming up in Cincinnati before a game, and he was batting out flies near me. He would talk to me between each ball he hit to the outfield. "'Got anything today, Matty?' he asked. "'Guess there ain't many games left in you. You're getting old.' When I broke into the National League, the Brooklyn Club had as bad a bunch of men to bother a pitcher as I ever faced. The team had won the championship in 1900, and naturally they were all pretty chesty. When I first began to play in 1901, this crowd, Kelly, Jennings, Keeler, and Hanlon, got after me pretty strong. But I seemed to get pitching nourishment out of their line of conversation and won a lot of games. At last, so I've been told, Hanlon, who was the manager, said to his conversational ball players, "'Lay off that Mathewson kid. Leave him alone.' He likes the chatter you fellows spill out there. They did not bother me after that, but this bunch spoiled many a promising young pitcher. Speaking of sizing up the temperament of batters and pitchers in a pinch, a few persons realized that it was a little bit of carelessly placed conversation belonging to Chief Bender, the Indian pitcher on the athletics, that did as much as anything to give the Giants the first game in the 1911 World Series. Josh DeVore, the left fielder on the New York team, is an in-and-out batter, but he is a bulldog in a pinch and is more apt to make a hit in a tight place than when the bases are empty, and he is quite as likely to strike out. He is the type of ballplayer who cannot be rattled. With Chief Myers on second base, the score tied and two out, DeVore came to the bat in the seventh inning of the first game. Look at little Josh, said Bender, who had been talking to batters all through the game. "'Devore promptly got himself into the hole with two strikes and two balls on him, "'but a little drawback like that never worries Josh. "'I'm going to pitch you a curve ball over the outside corner,' shouted Bender as he wound up. "'I know it, Chief,' replied Josh, and he set himself to receive just that sort of delivery. "'Up came the predicted curve over the outside corner. "'Josh hit it to left field for two bases and brought home the winning run.' Bender evidently thought that, by telling DeVore what he was actually going to pitch, he would make him think he was going to cross him. I knew it would be a curveball, DeVore told me after the game. With two and two, he would be crazy to hand me anything else. When he made that crack, I guessed that he was trying to cross me by telling the truth. Before he spoke, I wasn't sure which corner he was going to put it over, but he tipped me. Some batters might have been fooled by those tactics, it was taking a chance in a pinch, and Bender lost. Very few of the fans who saw this first game of the 1911 World Series realized that the break in that contest came in the fifth inning. The score was tied, with runners on second and third bases with two out, when Eddie Collins, the fast second baseman of the Athletics and a dangerous hitter, came to the bat. I realized that I was skating on thin ice and was putting everything I had on the ball. Collins hit a slow one down the first baseline, about six feet inside the bag. With the hit, I ran over to cover the base, and Merkel made for the ball, but he had to get directly in my line of approach to field it. Collins, steaming down the baseline, realized that if he could get the decision at first on this hit, his team would probably win the game, as the two other runners could score easily. In a flash, I was aware of this, too. I'll take it, yelled Merkel as he stopped to pick up the ball. Seeing Merkel and me in front of him, both heavy men, Collins knew that he could not get past us standing up. When still ten or twelve feet from the bag, he slid, hoping to take us unawares and thus avoid being touched. He could then scramble to the bag. As soon as he jumped, I realized what he hoped to do, and fearing that Merkel would miss him, I grabbed the first baseman and hurled him at Collins. It was an old-fashioned football shove, Merkel landing on Collins and touching him out. A great many of the spectators believed that I had interfered with Merkel on the play. As a matter of fact, I thought that it was the crisis of the game and knew that if Collins was not put out, he would probably lose. That football shove was a brand new play to me in baseball, invented on the spur of the second, but it worked. In minor leagues, there are fewer games in which a break comes. It does not develop in all big league contests by any means. Sometimes one team starts to win in the first inning and simply runs away from the other club all the way. But in all close games, the pinch shows up. It happens in many contests in the major leagues because of the almost perfect baseball played. Depending on his fielders, a manager can play for this break, and when the pinch comes, it is a case of the batter's nerve against the pitchers. End of chapter three.